a burr is a real pain in the leg. Do you know what a burr is? It's the rough prickly seed case or fruit of certain plants. They drop from the plants, catch on animals, leaves, and other objects around them, which carry them to different locations, spreading their seeds. I remember running around during recess at school and having the hooks of these tiny burrs catch onto my bare legs, right above my socks. And it was always painful, or at the very least, annoying. They reminded me of tumbleweeds that always seemed to attach themselves to me. In 1941, a burr, or rather a series of burrs, became an inspiration for innovation. While walking through brush on a hunting trip, George de Mestrel found himself plagued by these burrs as they clung to his pants. Curious as to the scientific construction of these spiky nuisances, he studied them under a microscope and noticed they consisted of thousands of tiny hooks. De Mestrel wondered if he could replicate these microscopic hooks within a synthetic fabric, ones that would latch on to a series of tiny loops. Doing so would eliminate the need for larger fasteners like buttons or zippers on pants. It took more than a decade, but Demestrel was eventually able to find the right fabric for his design, and patented the hook-and-loop system he devised. Mass-producing the material turned out to be a challenge, and after another few years, he finally figured out how to cut the loops at the perfect angle on a larger scale relieving him of having to make each piece of fabric by hand. Demestrel called his company Velcro, a combination of the word velvet and crochet. The fabric he used was a blend of a rigid nylon and a softer cotton, which made it strong enough to fasten the hook-and-loop system, yet remain loose enough for a person to wear. And Demestrel's out-of-the-box thinking took an out-of-this-world company to make it popular. In the 1960s, NASA used the Velcro product for a practical purpose, to fasten items to the inner walls of a spaceship while astronauts were in orbit. And suddenly, it became the ultimate space-age fashion accessory on clothing, heralded by fashion designers and the general public. Sometimes a simple idea can have a much bigger effect than any of us could ever imagine. And for toy designer Kathy Vaness, the hair-rooting method she pitched back in the 1970s and was first employed on a Princess Leia action figure is one that is still used on dolls around the world today. And the fabric that decorated the characters of Kenner's rose petal place line has become a fashion staple seen in clothing stores and in shopping malls for the past 30 years. This is part two of a conversation with innovative toy designer Kathy Vaness. This is a collection of stories from her time at Kenner, her 50-year career in the toy industry, and her time working on iconic Star Wars figures and plush creations from George Lucas's universe. This is the history of the toys we love by a person who loves to make toys. And this is Star Wars Prototypes and Production. In our previous conversation with Kathy Vaness, she explained how she got started in the toy industry and what it was like to work at Knickerbocker and at Kenner. We also had the rare opportunity to hear about her time on the Star Wars line 
and what George Lucas thought of her Ewoks plush creations. So let's return to that conversation with Kathy as she shares more stories behind pieces like the three and three quarter inch Yoda figure the unproduced Talking Yoda doll, and many more items during her 50-year career as a toy designer. There's some things that that go from generation to generation that don't change. I know everybody says, well, you're dated. There are some things that don't change from generation to generation that comes from the soul. It's in your soul. What you think is what warms your heart, what makes you smile. You have to pay attention, pay attention to people and how they feel and what they respond to, what makes them happy, what makes them smile. Yeah, and I think you did that with the Ewoks. Because if you look at those plush dolls, to me, that was one of the first things I saw before I knew the movie. I had so many friends that owned them as children that would fall asleep with them at night. And there was a realism, but it was also done in a different style. And I feel like it helped to connect kids to the Ewoks. We simplified the look. They had teeth. They had teeth and those eyes, you know. They were kind of a little bit ferocious. They looked like they could eat meat. Yes, and then they did. (laughs) And and uh, but the toy doesn't look like it would. Doesn't look like it would bite you. Looks like it would be your friend. We wanted it to because we also I felt at the time that if it had a chance, if it were with the superhero with the 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 um, little figures, he would be more uh, ferocious looking. But I thought that if he was a softer, younger kind of a, an appeal, we would get more, more, maybe a younger crowd, maybe a younger consumer into the Star Wars. And I think there's, you know, there's little parts and the other stuff they can't have. They could have an Ewok. You know, I think there's a, a connection to the Ewoks that lasts today because of the design choice. And I think that really comes from your eye and from seeing it and putting it together that forms something cuddly and connective, but at the same time, it represented something we saw on screen, but looks a little different. Yeah, softened him up a little. Gave him a little more belly, you know, a little <laughs> hot belly. You know, it's cute. Made him a little sweeter. But we made, we, you know, we gave him the cloak and his stuff and it looked like him, looked like Wicket and all his friends and the babies, you know, we did the babies. Speaking of cloaks, you worked on one of my favorite figures of all time. Um, And you actually put two of my favorite things of all time together, which is uh, the three and three quarter inch Yoda figure and and T. Could you explain how you worked on that (laughs) that particular cloak for arguably one of the most iconic uh, action figures ever created? That little Yoda guy with the snake, the little thing around. Well, he was like missing in action and we knew he was coming soon to the department and he, they would come, I would be supporting my, my little group supported the boys area. So they came around and said, we're going to need a little coat for this guy. So we don't have any fabric for him. We have pink and we have greens, aquas, lavenders. We don't have any brown we don't have any olive green. We don't have any Star Wars fabric. We would have to go out, buy clothing and cut it up. So we'd buy XXXX large and then we'd cut out a couple of pieces. And so here we have this tiny little Yoda and he needed a coat. So we had a white one. We had white Trico. It's a little brush Trico, like pajama fabric. And we would do with we went with the markers, made it stiff couldn't get a good color. And one day, Bev, we're making white ones for him because that's all we had. And we're trying to think how we're going to dye him. Well, the writ dye doesn't take to the nylon. We went through all this stuff. And Bev leans over and puts the coat in her teacup. And it stained the brush trico, the perfect color brown for Yoda. We were so excited when it came out that we just filled her teacup with coats. We had to make like about, I, was, I guess we made, probably made about six of them. I don't know where they, I only have one today, but I don't know what happened to them. 
And then so you were able to take what you made using the tea and a white coat. And then how did you transfer that to the production one, the one that wound up on the figure? Well, then what you do is, then what we do is we would make the pattern, the sewing pattern, and we take the white trico, we dip it in the tea, and we make a swatch, a little two-inch square piece of fabric, and we make it that color, and we do a, a specification sheet, and we put all that together, give it to the boys toy people that are going to send over their engineering drawings and their stuff. And, and it goes to manufacturing that way. And then they send back, then, then your, your factory has to find that fabric in the correct color. They don't dye it with tea. They, they, they actually have to make that color brown. And then we get it back and approve that as they make it. But that's how we get it from, it starts in our group, any which way you can do it, you know, that's the difference. And then it'll become, uh, and when you're doing it, when you're coming up with something, you have to think that they're going to be able to reproduce it in production. You have to consider. So we know they're not going to dye the fabric in tea, but we know all we had to do is come up with a color at that point. And they would find a consistent way to reproduce that. Right. And they would do it in production quantities. Did you happen to work on the talking Yoda or the Yoda hand puppet? Oh, yeah, I did all those. And the talking Yoda is a very long, 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 long story. It started as a um, pillow. And I got this, um, this, this advertisement in the mail where they were silk screening onto pillows, characters like camels and animals and things. And I brought it in to Bill Raiden and he said, no, he says, I want you to sew the Yoda in a pillow. And we're thinking, wow, how's that going to happen? Because he's got more wrinkles. We sew the wrinkles in. Do we draw the wrinkles on? It was a very complicated sewing product. It, it would it would have been really difficult. So we kept trying to get his wrinkles in his chin with a with a seam around the bottom of his face. And then we had his ears come out like other. And then we had a solid body like a pillow. And we thought, you know what? We did that for a couple of weeks, I would say. We kept trying to figure out a face pattern, trying to mismatch pattern, all kinds of techniques and sewing. What, what could we uh, achieve that's reasonable to do in production because labor is what costs you in sewing. So we finally gave up and nobody was going for the sewing and we decided to paint it on there. Either we were going to, we were going to print it. So we decided to do some kind, either silkscreen it or what we call sublimate it, which is the direct art goes from, one position goes through a process where they put it on a paper and then the ink turns to a gas and it gets transferred to a fabric, very much like the T-shirts that they do, that they still do. And you can get, you can duplicate exact art. You could do a, a portrait. You could do exact art if you did this process. So we employed a couple of people. One was Earl Huddleston and another one was, um, i trying to remember his name, who did the silk screen. And what we did was first we had him do a little face, airbrush a little face, and that got approved. And then he did the whole body and um, face and everything. Everybody loved that. And the silk screen didn't make it, but the meanwhile, I had to uh, put all of this information over to the Hong Kong office to see if we could afford it. And so there was a lot of, lot of development going on with this talking Yoda. Plus we had the pull string voice. And so we had to get the recordings for the six phrases. So I didn't have the six phrases. So one of the, one of the prototypes had a baby doll and it's, and you would pull Yoda's <laughs> string and it would say, I want to play with you. And so we were very entertained by that. We laughed about that for a long time. I had that for a long time. And 
that was that was one of the prototypes to illustrate where the string would come out of the pillow. And, you know, you had to always mock up something to explain what you what direction you were going to in the end. And then we had Earl do a silkscreen copy of the Yoda, which was very nicely done. And in the meantime, I had done sublimation papers of the original airbrushed model. And so I still have six of those papers and they're actual, the actual sublimation paper. If you put it in a t-shirt press, you could have a talking Yoda, but I haven't done, I think that, I don't know, they're how long, 30 something years old. They probably, I don't know if they still work or not, but I think they do. Technically they may. <laughs> I keep thinking I should take the iron at home and see if I can make a, a Yoda shirt for myself. But that I had those done in anticipation of how does the artwork translate to the sublimation paper? Because sometimes you lose some of the depth. You may want to make some adjustments to the original art, you know? So, so I, that's why there's only six because we were just going through that process. Okay, so we've gone through that process. We have the silk screen. I'm getting all of this costed overseas. And Bill Raiden comes in and says, they don't want to do the pillow. Mm. <laughs> they just want to do a hard head with the stuffed body. Okay, so now we start all over again. So now we got, I think it was Cindy, was it Cindy Cunningham? One of the sculptors did the head. And then... We had, oh, first we had a, we were going to do a head. Then we decided, oh, we're going to do feet and hands. They were, they were going to be vinyl as well. So now we have the pillow body and we have arms and now we're sewing on vinyl hands. Then they said, well, we think we want to root the head. So now we put in like five hairs on top of his head. And of course we had to paint them. You know, we do all the painting, we do all the sewing, put the, and then you put a cable tie on his neck, you assemble this thing, put the, the uh, voice box in it. So that's how talking, that's a, it's a long time development, a lot of samples, a lot of reiterations of the talking Yoda. So the final talking Yoda is the one that has the vinyl head with the vinyl hands and a little stick and his feet. But the original one, the very, 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 very first talking Yoda was a pillow. That's an incredible story. How long did it take from concept to production at that point? Oh, about a year. Okay. It was a year. I would say a good 10 months at least, almost a year, because they kept, and we had another, I think, I don't know if you know Tom Clark, he's, real fun wonderful guy and he, and he was he wanted to do a yoda puppet but this puppet was gigantic <laughs> excuse me it, this thing had a head the size of a bowling ball i mean yoda was going to be a big gigantic head like three or four feet tall maybe i don't know because i'm asking i kept asking him who's who's the puppet for i the head you know you have to you have to put it down so he wants a loose a loose loose body hands and he wants to put the hand your hand up into the head and move the mouth oh it's crazy <laughs> so that didn't work and we kept getting reiterations of the yoda puppets and it turned out in the very end they they leave the see everything i make it would go to a marketing person and they would leave with it and then a while later they come back and then they have some kind of a story or request or whatever. And I'd make changes or start over or whatever. They, they make a new direction. And then we went with the puppets. There was that gigantic one. They tested it. The children couldn't work it. It was too big. <laughs> then we made a little bit smaller. Well, then they, they couldn't really move the mouth. So he did. they decided that they were going to make him totally vinyl. And I think that that's where he wound up, which is difficult because the vinyl, the, you know, the PVC vinyl gets harder. You know, you'd have to make the durometer so soft in order to be a puppet to move it. It wasn't 
very realistic to me, but that's where they wound up with the puppet. And I think at the end, they wound up making him a like a magic eight ball. I think you turned him over and he he told you the future or you okay. asked him a question. Do you remember that one? I know there was a vinyl hand puppet um, and it was, yeah, it was and he pretty was small. All one. Was, He's right. one piece. I don't know if it had the uh, the magic eight ball in it, or if that was yeah, another idea. It was one that yeah. maybe it never went to production, but at one time they, you know, you would ask him, you know, questions, and he would you would turn him upside down, and the little thing that floated around and came to the surface with the answer. They had one of. The, I thought that was a more appropriate product for that sculpting, but they did do the puppet. I think they did do the puppet. They did. With the popularity of the Ewoks, you were also tasked with coming up with another plush character from Return of the Jedi. Is that correct? When he was when he was considered the ted, newest teddy bear, then uh, marketing came and said, "You know, we have to have another stuffed toy from Star Wars." Well, I saw the movies; I didn't see any, and they they worked on it and thought it. And then they came and said, "Well, how about that little salacious crumb?" I thought that little giggly thing that, you know, with the big uh, wormy guy, he's going to be a stuffed toy. Wow. He's like a bird. He had a a beak kind of thing and he had sharp ears and his uh, buggy eyes. And I said, you you're going to you want that as a stuffed toy? Yes. Oh, absolutely. I said, okay, but I don't know who who's going to want this you know like stuff toy world like who what little child are you giving this to somebody three and under or four and up but who's gonna want stuffed salacious crumbs so i went back out to new jersey to my friend who did the ewok with me and we put this horrendous looking animal together and it had sharp ears and had we had put fur on its head and buggy eyes and we put fake fingernails on him and he was made out of this uh it's a like a leathery type fabric it's a uh, polyurethane coated like a brassy color but the interesting thing about him is he too was all wrinkled and we sewed it into his face in a way where we mismatched the patterns on his beak so that the wrinkles happened when you assembled the sewing, which was very unique. And it would have to have been explained that it was on purpose because it's not a conventional way of sewing for production. Although it really did not add any labor, which would have been the alternative is making it so that you would do a lot of hand stitching to get a lot of wrinkles in his face. Mm-hmm. So you creatively came up with an idea of using a mismatch pattern that when put together would automatically form wrinkles in Salacious Crumb's face. Yeah, it was great. It was great. And we were all excited about it. And and the thing about working in the engineering department, I there was nobody in the company that did girls' toys or soft goods, anything with soft goods. Throughout the entire company, like there was nobody, no nobody uh, in costing, there was nobody in engineering, there was nobody in any of the other extended uh, departments that did my stuff. So a lot of things like the costing, doing yields, you know, to find out how much fabric usage we would do in my department because there was nobody in costing. They did the, they were used to doing molds and other stuff you know they 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 did the boys things plastic things but the fabric end of it was really concentrated with me and so if it was uh manufacturing quality control i um all the departments nobody had anybody we were sort of a small little isolated support group. And yet we were doing all of the characters for the company, all of the soft, all anything soft that was sewn, no matter what the product was, whether it was a blanket in a, in, in a craft or whatever it was, came through my department because it was fabric. And so as a result of that, 
I got to go to manufacturing. I used to be gone quite a bit. I went to all the third world countries that we did five vendors in five countries for the Ewoks. So I would go from Taiwan to Korea to China to Haiti. And we kept going Thailand to um, make sure that all the production was approved and they had any questions or any problems. I was the only one, there was nobody, we didn't have anybody in manufacturing that did soft goods. So I kind of got, got in it from the beginning all the way through to signing off at the end when it came into Oakley. And if there was anything wrong with these things, myself, we had a, we, myself and one Q, QC person and Carol, the chem lab, were assigned to correct any problems that came into our Oakley plant to fix it. There was nobody in the company. So that's that's just the way it was. I guess they remained, no matter how much of that stuff they did, they still remained a plastic toy company, more or less, I guess. When you were traveling to the different factories, were they producing different parts of the Ewoks there? No, no. They would produce, well, they may be doing different characters. Like Nisa was produced in both China and Korea. The the plush that was in Korea, when you hugged it and left it, all the, all the fur was left on your shirt or your sweater. <laughs> So naturally, uh, put me back on a plane and everybody would come, what is the problem? And I think I'd mentioned to you, when the Ewoks got to be big and they were considered the next teddy bear, everybody would steal samples and take them. And I could not, I, I was almost locking them away because, you know, there's an assignment. You can have to do certain amounts for certain people. And the we had this problem with the uh, NISA and I don't I don't want to get into too too much technicality on it but in the there's a guard hair that goes through the ground yarns of a plush and these were um slippery so they had to treat it differently they had to put different different fur type condition that goes through the plush in order for it to stick in stay in the in the fabric itself so they took the nisa and they have a big executive meeting in the conference room and they pass Nisa around and now everybody is covered in the fur and it's all my fault. And I get yelled at and they come down and what's the matter with it? And I say, you know, I wish you wouldn't steal it. If you needed a doll or toy, should ask me not take that one. But those are the problems, the kinds of problems that I would have to solve at the other end. So Nisa, yes, she went to market and not shedding like that. But those are the problems. And that's why they would send you there. So if you did anything, you would have to think, how is the factory going to do this in an efficient way as well and make sure that they can? And the QC, you know, had to pass the, they had to pass the, uh, no, it's not just no lead in the paint. They had to pass the Ewoks eyes had to be, spray painted so you had to worry about the paint you had to worry about how thick they sprayed it how they're going to spray it all that stuff it's a complete thing from soup to nuts <laughs> on the three and three quarter inch line when you transition from empire strikes back to return of the jedi were any of the ideas for the soft goods yours like luke jedi's cape or squid head skirt no, no, they're not, no, none of the ideas were mine, but they all came through my my group, my area. They'd have to come to me like uh, we would solve any of the problems that they had. They were not um, real keen on on adding the soft because they eventually went to more vinyl die cut robes and things like that, and um, did less of the soft goods because the soft goods were more expensive. You know, they, that adds cost to your toy. So I tried to avoid it. And we would we would just uh, make sure that we gave them what they needed, what the what the item looked like. You know, if he needed like, of course, those uh, 15 inch dolls and things like that, 
Well, that was right up our alley doing outfits. We knew how to do that. And we would, we would be in charge of the sculpting. We would, um, we would take over. In fact, we did all of the character licensing that came into Kenner because prelim department did new ideas, new concepts. They didn't do, uh, they didn't develop, let's say, if uh, they did, they had to start from scratch, scratch ideas. Whereas we would take a licensing, if it was Qbert, if it was uh, anybody, anybody at all, we did, Beetlejuice, we did I, there's just hundreds of toys. But if somebody came by and said, well, we want the license for, you know, there's a television show, we're going to get the license. Well, I get the call. We would have to develop the characters. So we did all the character development in my group. So naturally, like Superman, we did a Superman and, you know, Jan Vandermeer, he'd come in my office and he'd say, you know, Kathy, I want a cape and I want the cape to go like this. I said, well, the guy's three inches tall. Where's the flow? Oh, he says, it's Superman. He wants it to go like that. I said, well, I don't know how we're going to do that. He says, I said, it's kind of small. He says, and I don't want it. I don't want to, I don't want to stick it in the seams of the figure and I don't want anything around his neck. All right, just you got any you're sitting there. How would you tell him where where do we do how is this cape? How is it going to stick to the figure? He doesn't know, but it has to be. I said, okay, let me think about it. And we're sitting around and Jane says, you know what? Why don't we put a Darcy bracelet around his neck? So what a great idea. So now we make this little, um, like a little, what I, they call it a gusset where you could slip the, the ring through. The bracelet has an opening. So we figured we'd stick the opening in the front because Jan doesn't want anything in the front. And it'll snap on the back of Superman. And it's about, I don't know, an inch and a half long of this cape. Use of material you could die cut so we don't, so it has as much flow as it can. And that's how we got there. And that's what he has today. So even though they're boys' toys, they have girl bracelets on their neck. Just so you know, guys. <laughs> that's great. That's how it happens. One of the things probably was that that people would maybe find interesting is in order to make a prototype sample or a first first sample, the fact that we don't have, uh, especially in my group, we didn't have any boys' fabrics or colors. We would have to go buy shirts or go to the local store and find something that was appropriate for their characters. So therefore, if you see the samples today, they're all different. They're for whatever, whatever fabrics or whatever we could get muster together. That's how the Yoda cape wound up in the teacup. That's how sometimes you'll see prototypes that are not produced or very early samples are different from each other because we used whatever we needed to use in order to present the concept or the character. Why did you leave Kenner? Well, Kenner went through a huge evolution of, um, of, of, I guess, how they went about things. When, when uh, there was a point where we weren't using new molds, we were using old molds to make newer products, and it became uh, probably not as as popular we didn't have a a product line that was was doing phenomenally well i'm trying to think and at that time my my children were already now out of high school ready for college and i could go back to new jersey and i got an offer from tyco which was a boys toy company who wanted to do girls toys and so I thought that was an opportunity for me to go back to New Jersey and to um, continue to grow a company, whereas Kenner was really scaling down. They had more people than they had products. They mixed things around and we weren't doing, um, 
wasn't the same. A lot of people changed around. They, I don't know how to explain it, but it wasn't the same place after a while. And I could probably offer more somewhere else. Makes sense. What type of work did you do at Tyco when you returned to New Jersey? Well, as Tyco, what I did was I did mostly large mechanical dolls and I did plush. And what I started to do was I started to go to companies and increase their visibility and their profit in girls' toys. So when I left and when I was at Kenner, there was a time when we were with Strawberry Shortcake and Care Bears and all that stuff that we brought in was 52% of Kenner's business. And that went on for probably about three years or more. And so I realized, learned at Kenner how to do that, how to be relevant in the marketplace, how to compete with the other toy companies, how to make the best products, how to, we were expected to sell millions of items. So you have to resonate with millions of people. Not like, you know, not like just, there are toy companies that do it for educational people. When somebody says, oh, why don't you do girls construction? Because there's not enough people that are interested. So our, we were more how to hit millions of people. So I learned how to do that at Kenner and what it took. And so going to the next toy company, they want to get into girls' toys. I knew how to put their company in the number one spot in girls' toys. So I went to Tyco. We became number one in girls' toys, in plush, and in dolls, and Kenner was no longer. And then from there, I went to Cap Toys, and he became number one in girls' plush, and he was number one in um, small dolls, and then... That was sold, and I left and went to Toy Biz. And then we had number one dolls and plush in that company. Would you say your legacy was going from company to company, many of which were boys' toys focused, and you brought an element that expanded the universe that included girls as well? Yes. I think that's probably part of the, yes, yes, definitely, yes. That I can actually take a boys' toy company or any company and bring them into a winning position. That's an outstanding trait to have when you think about it, because there are so many few, there's so few people who are able to think that widely and are then able to take something that is already established and expand it. To me, I think it's really impactful. But when you think about it, the first thing you do when you get there is you learn who they are. So to go to Tyco, I would learn who they are, how they do things, what their personality is. And one of the big things is what does the consumer expect from that company? You know, excuse me, like uh, if you knew a Kenner toy, you knew what a Kenner toy looked like. You knew the difference between the Kenner action figures and and the toy biz action figures. They had a different look, they had a different quality. So you learn what that company is, what the consumer expects from that company, which adds a level of trust in, in also buying. So what when I went to, um, let's say, Toy Biz, for example, which I think, you know, Avi Arad, he, his, he wanted to be always in girls' toys. So I said, OK, want to get into girls' toys. And he wanted to leave and go to California. So he thought he was the girls' toy guy. And then he said, well, I'll go to California. You do the girls' toys at Toy Biz. And as a result, we did quite a good business in girls' toys. But it's because I also took products that Toy Biz would not be distrusted for. They would say, oh, yeah, I could see where where they would make those. And that's part of the element of understanding when you go, and what does the president want to do? You want to increase your business 6%, 10%. I went to Playmates. They said, and initially they said, you know, we got the strawberry shortcake license. We would like to increase the uh, sales 10%. So I look it over and I see what they have, what they did, 
what's expected, the personality, who they have on staff, what their, their um, I guess their skills are. And therefore, because it takes a certain group of skills and, and certain areas of your development that make the difference. And then you'd fill in and you do, and you would bring those people along to the direction of success in the product lines. So that's how it goes. And it, and it, it works. And I'm sure there was a lot of competition at the time too, right? When you were at Kenner, you had to deal with brands like Mattel. Can you give us an example of a time where you had to deal with trying to beat out Mattel in producing something before they did? Oh, we were so good at it. We were so good at it, especially Jane. Jane and I enjoyed that more than anything. But things like we would go, well, you, you go to the, to- we go- everybody goes to the toy store, all toy designers go to the toy store and look at your competition. And we would always know what somebody else is, is doing. And we'd always want to do something new and different and better. And what we did at Kenner, which was we would have a process or, for example, the hair rooting. They didn't have that for Barbie. And then we had a fabric that when we were when we would go to trade shows, we went to the bobbin show and we saw somebody making fabric where they put this film on top of this nylon trico and making sparkly type fabrics. And even though it was a 36 inch square, that's about our, that's where we live in the 30. We can make a few outfits out of that. So we got a hold of him and that, and he was patenting it for the United States and international. So this meant this would be exclusive for us. And we were doing a little doll line called Rose Petal Place. And we thought, whoa, we're going to use this fabric. So we brought it back to Cincinnati and we made all these outfits and everybody couldn't get over how unusual this fabric was. Well, we long story short, we wound up figuring out, which we were actually required to do at Kenner. We figured out how to make it in production, which is not easy, and had a few problems. There are bubbles in it and, you know, making it on a mass scale and all. But we knew that the um, fabric guy that we saw at at Bobbin Show had it patented for the United States. And we knew Mattel couldn't do it. So we were pretty excited about it. We had about 18 months before everything fell apart and they could get a hold of something like it and whatever, whatever. But we were out there on the marketplace with that spectacular fabric. And interestingly enough, we're all wearing it as adults and humans today. So I guess it was a pretty neat idea back then. Neat idea. Now I see it everywhere all the time. And when I see people wearing something that looks familiar that when I thought it was only available on a 36 inch square, I do get a charge out of that. It's amazing to see the influence that you've had, not only in toys, but in our culture, in a sense, as well. I And actually, that would be, yeah, I guess it would be. I did a toy at Camp Toys called Melanie's Mall, and we had this sparkle fabric that, that we developed way back at Kenner. And this is years, this has got to be 12, 15 years later, and I'm doing Melanie's Mall and we're at Toy Fair and the marketing girl comes in with a jacket, a pink sparkle jacket of the same fabric that I remember creating back at Kenner. And it dawned on me that people, cute people, real people are wearing these doll fabrics that, and it's everywhere. It dawned on me like, wow, once Hong Kong got a hold of the ability to make this, they evolved it into, wow, it's a whole, it's so far advanced from where we were, but that's where it is. That's where it came from. And, you know, the the textile industry overseas does a fabulous job in new fabrics and wild looking. Every sparkle thing on a on somebody's outfit today reminds me before that there was none. And before- Rose Petal Place. Right. And before and before strawberry, you didn't see colored hair. A lot of stuff started at Kenner, made it a very exciting place to work and and evolve. What do you think was the biggest innovation you witnessed while you were at Kenner? The biggest innovation concerning something that exists today? 
Yes. For example, probably the, the biggest is probably that fabric because it's, it's so everywhere. It's like, and maybe I would say maybe the doll hair rooting. I don't think you could ask anybody today. They know where that comes from. It's just standard. It's an actual now standard all over the world. And not everybody does it. Sometimes I see now, I, I keep looking. I always look to see if they're still doing it or they're doing different rooting patterns and all. But with the shrinking of the interest of rooted heads and dolls and stuff today, I don't think people are putting that kind of effort into the creativity or the designs of them like, like we did back then when we were trying to... Um, innovate a look or something fancy we had we would take uh coated let's say a, a die cut fabric and die cut holes in it and make something out of that so that they could do that in production look different and we would we just our lettuce edge you know you stretch the and you puts it through a hole in the machine and you get this ruffly edge we would try to do all kinds of innovative things before Mattel and we were getting really good at it. So Mattel was a way to really boost your creativity. Oh, yes, it was. That was the only one out there that really, um, in girls' toys, that really competed with us in, in the marketplace as far as, you know, as far as the large dolls. They did large dolls. They did a fashion doll. They did. So we were very, they were very aware of us. They would ask me about every I'm going to say four years if I would come and work for them. So I would go out for the interview and walk through their company and I'd see all our stuff all over their, <laughs> you know, their table. And I thought, oh, so you look at us too. But they knew, they knew where that was coming from. But one interesting thing that Kenner did, or it evolved from Kenner, was the fact that what I really wanted and needed at Knickerbocker over the years that evolved. I wanted a complete design capability. And to me, complete design capability is thinking of an idea, but also making it happen. It's not just, oh, I got a great idea. Good luck with that. And oh, that's good enough. I, I like the details all the way through to production. And to think that at Kenner, you could actually physically make that happen was beyond. And one of the things that evolved because of the way Kenner was structured, a lot of the people at Kenner didn't have toy jobs before. That was their first toy job. So this is all they knew of, of how to do toys and whatever, which was kind of an advantage. They weren't, they, anything was possible to them then. And they didn't ever hear the word no before they got to Kenner, that was their first time. In fact, people didn't even know that there was a six-inch vinyl doll before Strawberry Shortcake. So, so they were new. But what was interesting is as a result of me taking this job in engineering, they had what they called doll design in under engineering. So I was both an engineering manager and a design manager. So I actually developed both of those disciplines and created a soft goods engineering department along with the design department. And the advantage of that is that you work together side by side. And the success at the end in manufacturing is exactly what you planned because you control it the entire process. Hasbro had those departments separated. Even the face painting was somewhere else. We had our face painting was our, our outside vendors. We controlled everything. And so I had, so if, if Drew Holland had a design meeting, I would, industrial design meeting, I would go, I'm the design manager. If he had an engineering meeting, I'd have to go to that meeting too. If he was mad at me, I didn't go to either of them. And everybody listening who knows Drew knows that that's true. Then what happened was, Mattel, when I went out to Mattel, one of the problems was that they were not together. So the innovative engineering technical part of the design of the toy 
wasn't with the designers. The designers were more blue sky and sketchy and dreamy. And then they have to give it to the more technical people, which were not considered and soft goods engineers. They were the sewing people, sample people, whatever. And they were supposed to make the vision of this person who came to visit them from another department. And then there was a painting department, but at Kenner, I had it all in one, which was phenomenal. It's why Kenner soared like it did, because the correct disciplines were interacting on a daily basis. And in other companies that we were competing with, they were separated. And therefore, some of the things that I'm sure the initial designer or the company wished had come out at the end got lost in the going from place to place. They're isolated, somebody thinking without connecting. And I believe in I believe in teamwork, I believe in inclusivity and the more people that you get with good ideas, the better things are, and the more you can interact with people. So that I think that Kenner had a huge advantage. And when some of the people that I worked with at Knickerbocker went to Hasbro and they would call and try to steal my soft goods engineers to figure out how we operated. <laughs> One of the things that impressed me was that when you had to present the toys to Lucasfilm, you were able to, to do the changes that they wanted to make on the spot. Oh, that when I would go get the samples approved? Yes. Oh, yeah. There were a few of those times when I remember when we were doing, I'll tell you real quick, the Care Bears was where I really got a, got a hold of it. The Care Bears was another long operation, and everybody knew they'd be a giant success because they were pre-marketed for success. So once we got it to a certain point, we had to get it approved by 42 people and everybody wanted to be a part. In fact, they were on, was it Jay Leno or so? They were on television talking about the creativity of Care Bears and why do they look the way they look? But nobody ever asked me. Nobody ever asked me. There was this girl, Nanette, who sold the bear. and all. Okay. But I was responsible for everything. And we were getting late with the, the uh, schedule and they couldn't get along. Now these people that are all chest beating on the Care Bears are now not getting along. So Dave Maurer comes to me, he says, you know, you have to go out to New York with Bernie and Carol and you have to get this Care Bear approved because American Greetings is coming and Bernie Loomis is going and Carol McGilvery, they're all going and you have to go. And I said, you know, it's like sending the Christians to the lion. No, it's going to be fine. I said, you waited till everybody's so mad at each other and then you send me. So I'm knowing politically how this was going to go down. I figured out a technique that's very successful. And I took a box and I had all kinds of items in it, a scissor, a needle, a thread, yarn, everything. And when I got there and we sat in this room, I sat at the head of the table and I said, I'm here to get the Care Bears approved. And I have to leave here with an approved Care Bear because I'm late on the schedule and the costing's already in. You can't, you know, you gotta let me know today exactly where all of you people wanna be. So as they said, well, none of them really mean it. They're not accountable for the changes. They just say them like they've contributed and then they leave and then they don't say they don't care. So somebody would say, I don't know if they want any thumbs. I used to thumb. I said, okay, no thumb. Picked up the bear, cut his thumb off. They all fainted. They almost <laughs> had a heart attack. It was all I could do not to burst out laughing. It was so, so they went, wait up, go. So I said, well, you didn't want the thumb. I'm here to make the toy you want. And I'm going to leave with a toy that you like, that you've approved. Well, it's this, you know, it's heads a little bit. Take it. Every time I reached for the bear, they would scream no, because <laughs> I would change it right before their eyes. And sure. they're accountable. I left there with no changes. So I went back from New York to Cincinnati and Dave Maurer says, so how long for all the changes? I said, you know, Dave, there's no changes. They liked it the way it was. 
So when I went out with the Ewoks, because it was the same situation, marketing goes out three or four times. They come back with changes that don't are vague, I guess you could say. We're literal. We have to sit, we have to make a pattern piece fit together. We have to make it look a certain way when it's when we're looking. It's gotta be something we can do. Nobody, nobody had a specific when I, I need numbers, I need measurements, I need something. No, nothing. So finally, that's when they sent me out there with the Ewok. And I got it standing there. And Maggie says, well, I don't. And she's used to saying this to every time they came. I don't think I think it's not there yet. And I'd say, well, what do you think it needs? I have my stuff with me and I'll fix it exactly like you want it. I'm here for your approval. Well, I think his arms are a little long. I said, well, how short would you like them? And I tucked, and I did not give her the scare tactics that I did that the Care Bear people well deserved. I did not <laughs> do that. I gently said a little bit like this, is this better? And she started looking at me like, oh, I'm serious. And I thought, you know, I am sort of serious because I'm not marketing. I'm the guy in the you know, I'm in the barrel and I'm going to be on the plane to make this. So you got to help me out here and we got to be done. So she brings in Chris Warner. Come in, tell her what's wrong with it. What else does she need to do? It's make a little time. I pinch the seam, put the pin in. Say, Is this better for you? And no changes. <laughs> Sewing is within a quarter of an inch tolerance in production. And I told him that. I said, you know, and I'm only doing it less than a quarter of an inch and they're happy. So, and they said, thank you very much to me. They were so grateful and I was so appreciative. They loved it, got it approved into production, went wicked. That's amazing. It and was. It, it, it really is amazing also that you have the ability to go to a place like that, to do changes that they would need on the spot or to not do changes, but to be able to walk away with full approval Instead of taking a long time back and forth, right? Well, you know, I think the one thing is that I, I'm i serious. I believe it. I do want them to approve it. I do want them to like it. I want them to be happy with it. What I never had time for at Kennard from just, I mean, I think I mentioned I'm 3,000 hours overloaded every month on the workload. Had over 148 SKUs. And four of us, sometimes three of us. The most I ever had was 11 people, and we didn't even have products at the end. Five people with no product. Way back when we were loaded, we had no time. And I knew there was a, the success has many fathers, as they say. Failure had only one, it was me. So when anything <laughs> went wrong at Kenner, I got the call, I got the sure. whatever it was. Over that, they had that PA system. It, if I spoke up at a meeting, I got, I had to write a, Drew would make me write, um, what do you call it, procedures for him as a punishment for speaking out. Speaking oh, wow. Out. Oh, yeah. Really? <laughs> oh, yes. And people would say, oh, no, if I said, if we would be in a meeting and all of a sudden somebody would, you know, I disagree and I'd say, you know, I don't think so. You could hear a pin drop. They thought that's it for her. <laughs> she's on her way down to Drew's office and she's going to be writing the sample <laughs> submission procedure. Yep. After the meeting's over, my name over the over the Terry phone. Kathy, Vanessa, come down to Drew's office. I go down and I get my assignment and then I would do it. I would do it. I learned more from him than anybody. He was, I know deep down inside, I was his favorite, I believe. That's amazing. Oh, uh, that's so amazing. Could that be true? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm sure if, if he if he put time, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. He used to say, "I'll know what your capacity is yet one day." I said, "Never, never, <laughs> never." So, what do you think your legacy then is within the toy industry? I don't know. Making things happen, and and I think one of the things that I prided myself in when I think back over it is how many people that I felt I contributed to their development. You know, at Kenner, when I got there, I realized that they didn't have the toy experience I had. I developed the group that I had from the lowest paying person 
raise them higher. And then in the end, I felt that I would be rewarded. And I sort of was, sort of wasn't. But that was, and yet they all, it was the opportunity. I wanted them to expand their capabilities, their skills. And I would teach them anything, share anything I knew. And I feel that that is, if your glass is half empty, they'll give, they'll fill it the other half. So it's not, you know, there's no problem telling anybody what you know how to do or what you could do. You want, and then you pay attention to where they're at and then you bring them further for success. And I think I've done that throughout all the companies that I worked with and for. And I think that's probably one of the more rewarding things. And of course, some of the toys that I worked on that there's so many, almost 50 years, so many. Well, again, you've touched so many lives with, with the work that you produce. People are still talking about them. They're still collecting them. They're still a part of their lives, even as adults. Yeah. Well, I told you, I say the weird thing, where they show up, you know, where you, where you're sort of a part of them in a way, you remember them when they first happened. And I can remember, you know, I drive along the highway and I see a cross and an accident and then I see a little Care Bear there. So I've shared in everything. It feels like, and then the one Holly Hobby, one of the, the rag dolls was on the cover of Playboy. I mean, these things are all... <laughs> I would go, I went to Toy Fair a couple of years ago, maybe quite a few years ago now, and there were four or five product lines that I developed that were being relicensed there to this day. Still amazing. I mean, they still they, they get them back, they put them back out there. Sometimes they try. I could tell a few people like when they bring them back out that it's going to work or not work. But you have to really pay attention what's going on in the world. Do people want the teddy bear? Do they want the innovative? Are they ready for something sparky new? Just because your technology is way advanced, are the kids ready for maybe next year? Mm -hmm. Maybe not. Maybe they're so upset with it. They really want to go get a baby doll. You got to pay attention to what's going on all around everywhere. Kathy, it was so nice to talk to you today. This was a fascinating conversation, and I've learned so much uh, just from just from seeing things through your perspective. Um, but also, I, I'm so impressed with your talents and abilities, and the way that you've really been able to innovate and to change the toy industry for children and now grown-up children. Grown-up children. <laughs> well, thanks, Dave. Thanks for taking the time. I appreciate it. I hope we can do this again, and I look forward to speaking with you very soon. Sure. If you have any questions, feel that people still call. They have problems on their production line, whatever, they still call. So feel free. I'm open. One of the blessings of this podcast has been the chance to connect with other collectors who share the same passion for Star Wars and the collectibles from the Kenner and Hasbro eras. But to be able to speak with someone like Kathy, who worked directly on some of the most iconic Star Wars toys, and to hear her personal stories from that time, was a true gift. During our conversation, she described herself as a problem solver. Kathy was able to figure out new ways of doing things, of innovating, and she had a true impact on the toy industry. I was really impressed by her ability to work with all different types of personalities, and how she remained steady and confident in herself throughout her career. Kathy proved to be a leader, and those for whom she worked trusted her to speak for them. She acted as the liaison between the toy company and the licensee, like in how she presented her Ewoks designs to the team at Lucasfilm. And she was able to make changes on the spot, which likely sped up the approval and production times. To have the ability to innovate is extraordinary, 
and to be able to make the changes in the moment is another valuable instrument in a designer's arsenal. At one point, I asked Kathy if she had any other Star Wars stories she wanted to share during our conversation. She paused for a moment, and as she flipped through the highlight reel in her mind, she smiled and said, I have so many Star Wars stories from that time. And I hope to have Kathy back for future conversations, so she can tell you more about her experiences. On Star Wars, Prototypes and Production.